Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This week, we have part two of a recent federal trial that we had. The first witness we put on was our client, and my co-counsel put her on. And I looked at the, the first witness. First witness. Was that a decision like a that was belabored or was it pretty much decided that's how we're going? We wanted her we wanted them to hear her story first. Got it. Yeah. This is not a situation where we often find ourselves where our clients really are only damages witnesses. This was the whole case. Like you don't need anybody else to explain what happened and how it happened. Yeah. It's yeah. her. It, gonna, it, yeah. Her. And right. if you think that it's a he said, she said, then it's all her. Right. Yeah. I saw the jury's faces the way our tables were. I was de- directly facing the jury, which is always awkward. And I try not to look directly at them. But they all I had five women, three men, all the women in particular, very stern faces. You've heard me talk about this before, about jurors and defense mechanisms and no one wants to feel vulnerable. And so I think jurors come to a really sad, scary situation, such as a sexual assault or even medical malpractice. And they don't want to believe it happens because it makes you feel scared and vulnerable. And this was that situation. They didn't want to believe her. It's just easier to believe this shit doesn't happen. They didn't want to believe her. So their faces were very skeptical. By the end of their test of her testimony, all their faces were soft. There wasn't like any crying that I could see, but they were believing her. I could see it in their faces. And I thought, okay. This could be good. So we finished our client and the cross-examination, she was, she's a brave woman, Erica, as you say, and she was ready and she didn't fight with him. And the defense attorney was excellent and, and very skilled and was not going to bully or intimidate her. And so it was a very skilled cross-examination and she just kept very straightforward, didn't argue with him, didn't take the bait and did a very a very good job. Give, give me the optics on this. Was it male attorney who put her on? And what was the gender of the defense attorney crossing her? Yes, male attorney, my co-counsel male put her on and male defense attorney crossing her. We had the emergency room physician who was my, my witness. And he had been deposed, but through a mix-up, no videographer had been ordered for his deposition. And so we didn't have it on video. So we needed to call him live. And that was the right thing to do. I always get a little bit hesitant because it's in the can. They could go south. And this doctor worked for a local system. His policy is not to let any lawyer talk to the, this doctor before the doctor even gets a deposition or goes on the stand. And so I was told by the, the lawyer for the system, I did a subpoena, he'll be there. Can I talk to him? Can I prep him? No. So great. But he comes to court and it was right after we finished our client's testimony and there was a morning break and he was sitting there and I just spent five minutes with him. He was great. The medical record issue was, as you all know, I preach, read the records, read them 25 times, read every page, read the code sheet, read the bills, read it all. And I had done that for a deposition and the case came in the diagnosis as a, an alleged sexual assault. 
But the final diagnosis signed off by this physician was sexual assault. And so I made a distinction and said, okay, he could have easily continued to have chosen alleged sexual assault, but he chose sexual assault. So in his deposition, I spent two questions on it. Was this your final diagnosis? Yes. And that's your diagnosis today? Yes. And I didn't make a big deal out of it, didn't alert the defense attorney to it. So I'm pretty sure at trial, this was not anything that the defense counsel was really thinking a lot about. And in addition to that little piece that I pulled out of the records, there was also a face sheet with an IDC code. So that's the billing code that how these hospitals get paid. The IDC code was a number and it's, it came in initial diagnosis was sexual assault suspected. And then the final IDC code was sexual assault confirmed. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So that's what I found the day before his testimony. I put it up and I say, doctor, let me just get, let's just spend a second. I found this page. It's the IDC code. And you know what that is? Oh, yeah, I know what that is. And it came in and it first said suspected. And then what's this other one say? What's this final diagnosis say? And he said confirmed. Oh, I was like, well, let's go to page 17. This is your diagnosis. What is your final diagnosis, doctor? Sexual assault. And I, as a juror, you've got these folks that are trying to make a decision about who's right and who's wrong, who's telling the truth and who's not. This woman goes to the hospital, is seen by a medical professional whose opinion and diagnosis is sexual assault. And he was there speaking to her, listening to her story, and he believed her. And that's all I'm asking the jury to do. Do the same thing that the guy who was face-to-face with her within hours did, which is believe her. And so the defense didn't have a lot on cross. But the reason why I, I believed it was powerful was as what I've described to you, hoping the jury saw it my way, but then it was confirmed, I'll use that word again, when the defense counsel, after the next break, came up and the jury was gone, came up to the bench and said, Your Honor, I moved to strike the doctor's testimony. And (laughs) judge was like, why? And honestly, I don't remember the argument, but it was basically, it's like, it was too damning, judge. (laughs) (laughs) Really awful. Devastating to my case. You're going to give him too much weight, too much weight because he's a doctor. And looking at the physical evidence, which we are trying to keep out. (laughs) They're going to know we're lying. Yeah, I looked at the judge and I thought, what am I going to say? And luckily, sometimes, as you all know, if you just wait a second, wait a beat, (laughs) then the judge will take up your cause for you. (laughs) So the judge said, Mr. Whatever, I'm pretty sure that's why we're here to determine what that's a great response. Yeah. What witness. (laughs) So, yeah, no, that's overruled. And you had plenty of opportunity to cross examine it. It's Mm -hmm. not like there wasn't a cross examination that could have been done. So that went on. And then we put on the psychiatrist for the PTSD. And then we had a couple of depots. Did her husband testify? Yes. Because he was a plaintiff. Yeah. So that was all one day. And the next day, we started on the husband who was just such a believable guy, y'all. Just so sincere and so sad. Yeah. So sad by all this. Then I call the defendant in our case. So 
Those of you listening may know that in the plaintiff's case, if you call a witness your own witness, you can't lead that witness. You have to ask open-ended questions. Um, But if you call a witness adverse or hostile in your case, if they're adverse, which the defendant would certainly be, then you can cross-examine them in your case. So that was a tough decision because I have not had a lot of success in that. And it makes me nervous because then you're putting on what potentially could be bad evidence in your case. If that, if the defense, if the, if that witness is well prepared and it, but my co-counsel was like, no, I think you have to do it. We want the jury to hear our client's story. And then we want to hear his story through our narrative. Do you get to, are you the only one who asks him questions? No, there's two things that can happen. The defense attorney can let me do the cross of the defendant in my case and then wait and put the client, his own client back on like the next day or in his case, or they can really just go out of order. Like the cross goes first and then the defense attorney can do the direct. And that's what was chosen in this case. But what can't happen is if you put on the defendant as an adverse witness and then his attorneys elect to do their examination, he can't then testify again in their correct. case in chief. That's correct. Okay. So could that be the only time that they hear from the defendant? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Then. I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever been in a case where the admissions aren't through a video where right. there's been a live adverse witness. Yeah. But we think about it with doctors. Oh, we do I mean, it all the well, we, we do usually, it all the time, but we usually yeah. elect not to because we think it could do more damage than good if yeah. you're well prepared and most of the story is good. But in this particular case, again, all I had enough facts to make him look like a creepy guy. Yeah, and there's an element to you calling him in your case that makes me think you and your client have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Yep, I agree. That's what I would think. Just if I saw you all call him, I would just think and they're willing to do that. Yeah. And confronting him. Exactly. And, and confronting him in your case. Yeah, I do so think that optics him, are better. But <laughs> based on my experience with cross-examining doctors, surgeons in particular, I get a, the feel for the personality. And my clients the night before had said, Basically, are you going to destroy him? And I said, you know what, y'all? I don't think I'm going to. That's, I don't think I can. He's too much of a salesman. He's too much of a performer. He is smart enough to know what he thinks he needs to say. So he's not going to sit obediently and just answer yes or no. Okay. I don't want you to expect that he's going to be destroyed. But what I can promise you is that I'm going to give him enough rope to hang himself. Amen. And so I, and I'm going to try to keep it to questions that he really should say yes or no to. And because we're in federal court, I trusted that the judge was not going to let him run on and on. And that was a good bet. And I started out very simple. How old are you? 55. How old were you in in 2018 when this happened? 50. How tall are you? Six, whatever. How much did you weigh? 200 pounds. And she's a small person. And so I just wanted to set the scene for the jury. Wait a minute. We're talking about a 15-year age difference, which is not insignificant, and quite a big weight and height difference. So I'm setting up what should not be argumentative, just straight-up facts about can you see already what the power Mm. 
And then I said, do you have any evidence that the plaintiff invited you to her room other than your own testimony? And I'm not talking about what happened or didn't happen, but did she invite you to her room? Because I'm thinking like a woman, not like a woman. I'm thinking about what I worried about the women would be thinking, like she drank too much and she invited and she let him in and all that. And he wouldn't answer it. And he said, well, there's evidence that the judge won't let in and blah, blah, blah. No, I'm not kidding. And I didn't know what to say. I was like, oh, my God, am I opening the door to something here? And he just went on. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, sure. But I'm asking you, is anything. do anything is he said that? We're getting there. Is there anything that you're going to show today or tomorrow when you're in your case? And he wouldn't answer it. And the judge was like, Mr. Defendant. You need to answer these questions with yes or no if you can. And, like, he got on him. And the guy still didn't really care. Yeah. So I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was going to happen. I just waited for that to happen. I had a line of questions that were very succinct that he answered some of them. The judge would get on him a little bit. But basically, he just went on and on. And I would glance at the jury, and they weren't buying any of it. Because the truth was, which he had to agree with, I said, did she give you her room key? Do you have a text from her inviting you to her room at one o'clock in the morning? Did she leave? I played. I was like, you know, that metal thing that you use for the door. And he was like, oh, the clasp. I think, oh, yeah, yeah, the clasp. Was that out? Was the door ajar when you arrived? No. Oh, my gosh, Amy, this is incredible. The drama. No. Yeah, I mean, it was... Because that, it like, when you said that, I'm like, what other evidence would he have? And you're just knocking it down. Like, there's all the other things that in a consensual invite. And then I got to say, and so you're leaving, because he testified that she said, you can't tell anybody, and that he responded, I won't tell a soul. So now we're back to that. And... I thought that was creepy. I said, so as you're walking out the door, she says to you, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. He's Yeah, she said it five times. And I said, and you said, and I said it just like this, don't worry, I won't tell a soul. And he was like, you could tell he was like, oh, wait, that sounds bad. (laughs) And he was like, oh, but he knew he had to say it because he knew it was in his statement. And he goes, yeah. And then he ran on and on about it. But the point was made. If you're a creepy guy showing up at a younger woman's hotel room at one o'clock in the morning after you knew she was impaired. Oh, that was the other thing. He testified that he thought she was fine and acting normal. And we had every other person, even the women that had had told her you're going to lose your career, had said she was impaired. Now, the other thing I got to do was cross-examine the detective, and I talked about that a minute, a minute. But let me explain why the defense brought the detective. So they wanted the whole thing in, because what happened is they did a piss-poor job in the investigation, sent it to the prosecuting attorney who, mm. who declined to prosecute. Yeah. Because they were just it was a terrible investigation, and they wanted that in evidence, that he wasn't prosecuted. And the judge rightfully said, look, police reports, this is just an easy call. Police reports don't come in, whether it's a investigation like this or a motor vehicle accident report. They don't come in. The officer can testify about his personal observations or any particular tests that they ran. So that statements, but 
The statements, yes. Yeah. But all we had were summaries of the statements. Now, I had the defendant's statement recorded, but remember, they lost my clients. So the judge said, police report's out, but the defendant can say that he wasn't charged and he wasn't arrested. And I was worried about that because, again, burden of proof and all these things. But and at the last thing the defendant said on direct, and I got a little bit of recross, but was that I wasn't charged and I wasn't arrested. And that was the end of our case that we rested and the first defense witness was the detective. And the, the point of that was to be like, and here's the detective to explain what a good job he did. And so you must believe that she's a liar because the detective didn't, or he did a great job and he was not arrested and not charged. <laughs> so the detective gets up and remember we had taken his deposition and I'd done my best to shame him in his deposition. And he testified that they took photographs. They went to the hotel room and they took photographs and they, they took the car, the comforter into evidence and they took her clothes into evidence and all these things and the the officer had taken pictures of the room that included the bathroom that included the toilet I don't know why but remember my client had testified that she'd been very ill and vomiting from this the drugs that she thought she had the picture of the toilet was clean there's no vomit on the toilet so the defense attorney, I could, cl- I could see it come in. He was going to try to make it look like she's lying. She's not vomiting. That's not what a vomited toilet looks like. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is what we're doing. Okay, the detective really can't say a lot, really. So my cross to the detective literally was like five minutes. Detective, in August of 2018, you had done a total of two rape investigations previous, right? And prior to that date, you had never taken any courses in sexual assault or rape investigation. Is that correct? Received no training whatsoever on how to investigate a sexual assault investigation. True? True. Guy didn't fight with me at all. I said, and you, my client was picked up in a squad car by a uniformed officer and brought to the police department where you all talked to her for what, a couple hours? I believe so, yes. But you lost the recording, right? In the meantime, the defendant had gotten on his plane and flown back to Minnesota. And then when you did talk to the defendant a week later, you didn't use Zoom, did you? No. It wasn't in person, was it? No. Wasn't even on FaceTime, was it? No. So you had no idea how to read any of his facial expressions, right? No. And that's a really useful tool in trying to figure out whether someone's lying or not, isn't it? Yes. And you didn't have that, did you? No. Did you know whether anybody was in the room with him? No. Did you know whether he was referring to any papers while you were questioning him? No. Okay. And I had a few more things to do, but he didn't fight with me at all. And then the best thing after that was when we're doing jury instructions, the judge decided to give a limiting instruction on anything that the detective had done or any evidence like that because he said the defense opened the when the defense put the detective on, It was to bolster this idea that there was a robust investigation that led to no charges and no arrests. And the judge was like, I think that overly emphasized it. I'm going to give it limiting instruction about basically this is not a criminal burden of proof. This is a civil burden of proof. Don't be confused or something along those lines. 
And so that was the classic, be careful what you're trying to do. So long story short, listeners, I know I've been going on and on. Wait, I need to know about the toilet. Oh, then in close, the defense argued that, aha, look at this clean toilet and literally put it up for the jury to see. Look at this clean (laughs) toilet. She's a liar. She didn't vomit. Yeah, that happened. Oh, my God. So I thought, gosh, I'm sorry you to have somebody have the charge investigated or uh, it I just, just can't like even. So there's no criminal case. No. Failed to prosecute. Unfounded. Yeah. Because remember, the police officer said, I'm leaning toward consensual. And the drug, because the tox screen was. Oh, that's the other thing. She had a tox screen at the E.D., but because she went to a sort of a smaller hospital and not a bigger hospital, they were limited by what they could even test for. And the, the ED physician was very clear. Just because it didn't show up doesn't mean she wasn't drugged. I didn't I couldn't test for some really common date rape drugs. And just because they weren't there doesn't mean she wasn't drugged. And then they sent the blood to the Howie Patrol, which is an excellent lab, but also found nothing. And I asked the police officer, do you even know what they tested for? No. Because the whole thing was she wasn't drugged. Do you even know what they tested for? No. Do you have any idea what drugs there are that can be tested for, that can be used in sexual assault? No. Do you have any idea what the half-life is of any date rape drugs? What's a half-life? Oh, boy. (laughs) So... It was, it was just, it just all went in very well. It makes me think it's a really tough case from the fact that no arrest, no charge got in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that me, me to a jury, that is, that I feel is the, I think in the whole case, that's the hardest hurdle to get over. And then you have the ER physician. Yeah. Who confirms it. Yeah. And the cop doesn't even have charges against oh that's what i asked i said did you gather the medical records from the hospital did you talk to the doctor did he no and what's better isn't the rape kit the physical evidence yeah but the chart included the doctor's notes because the rape kit is the nurse's forensic analysis which is a 14 page like fill in the blank yeah but the best part again y'all read every piece of paper the police report at the very back Included, guess what? An authorization to the hospital. Stop. Stop. And he just didn't and get them. I said, he didn't officer, get the records. I said, Detective blah, blah, did you get the records from the hospital? Oh, I think I did. I said, no, sir. I, no, you had my client fill out an authorization to gather her personal health records, but you never sent it, did you? And he said no. And that's after the jury had heard the doctor confirm the sexual assault. That was all, I believe the jury quite clearly saw through all that. But Mary, you're right. It really worried me about the no assault, no arrested, no charged. But they got past it. Listeners, long story short, the jury found in our favor. They awarded our client $500,000 and her husband $200,000 for loss of consortium, which, depending on your perspective, is a lot of money or is not very much money for what she went through. But to me, it was a very clear indication that they believed her and that they want him to pay it. Because this was 
there's no insurance anywhere. I don't think anybody could believe there was any insurance anywhere. And so I think they were very thoughtful about if they had given millions of dollars, it was no way it was going to get paid. And remember, they had evidence of what money he made because they put on an economist to talk about his lost wages and how much money he was making. So I think the verdict was really thoughtful. And they said, of course, there's no defamation and awarded him nothing, found wow. against him for his defamation claim. What were your client's reactions to I mean, the reading of the verdict? It was so relief. It was just, you could physically see the pain and the stress falling off their shoulders. Oh, um, gosh. And just tears. And I, look, I weep when I think the jury sees it our way. And it's still amazing to me that we're in a position where we can convince people about our case. And I get teary-eyed when I think about it because it you put so much trust in these random people that you do not know and do not know your client. And by all measures, really shouldn't care, really shouldn't care, especially in our world where there's so many things going on and you don't want to be there. They really shouldn't have to care, but they did. And it was rewarding, which I hate to say it like that because of what my clients went through, but they were very, yeah, it was, that's the perfect word. It was very validating and that's all they really wanted. They just yeah. wanted to be believed. You also did the job that the criminal system did not do. Correct. How a parent just a little civil subpoena action yeah. investigated the whole claim and showed exactly what it was. Yeah. And it's really inter it's just so moving to think that the folks who are doing that investigation, they never thought it would end up going where it went because they're not faced with that resolve. I think about Most that dying. officer talking to the defendant on the phone yeah. and so flip filing it away yeah. thinking this is never going anywhere. And I also think it it was probably a little bit of they're not from here. Sure. One's in Colorado, one's in Minnesota. Who's going to listen to her? Yeah. She's gone. It's just yeah. I think that kind of had it must have played a role that I don't I guess I also don't want to believe that investigations can be that shoddy. Oh, Amy. I think I know, it's, <laughs> I, know, I think I it's know. all too common that that's pretty much a, the typical course of sexual assault investigations. The benefit of the doubt. Yeah. But I do think that it maybe we can take some comfort and this happened five years ago and we're at a different place now. Oh, that with so sexual weird. assault investigations and reporting and whether like we believe people or not. And I do think not to bring but like the stuff with Trump and like that was very so public similar. And it, I think that helps a lot for people to see the difference in criminal investigation and the civil side to where you don't have to be prosecuted on the criminal side for it not to be true. And to just know like, folks who are even on that jury or even on the panel who hear that this can actually come to fruition and have a result that it did. It's the optimist in me that wants to just think that anyone who's in the position that your client was in, Amy, 
will have the strength even in the moment to just pick up the phone and make that yeah, first call. I know. It was, it was so brave. The human cost of being that brave over and over again, because it's not one choice. No. It's not one like, I can get the nerve, I can do this. She's got to wake up every morning and keep going and not make the other call that would be easy to make and call you guys and say, I want to drop it. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. That is whatever 365 times five is. That's how many days she had to make that decision to keep going. That's right. And I, that could be soul crushing. And the fact that she gets it back in any small amount with the verdict right. is awesome. Yes. I want to shout out, of course, my co-counsel, Justin Plaskoff and Denny Goodrich Slinker. They were wonderful, and I appreciate them so much for selecting me <laughs> as local counsel and allowing me to play a role in this. Because when I think about opportunities for, quote, justice, close quote, I know we throw that around a lot, but this really, this will definitely go down in my book as one of those wonderful, privileged opportunities. Ladies and gentlemen, that is another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Thank you for joining us. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.